I'm sure you remember everything James said. And uh, remember him saying that in the, in the sutta, the Buddha describes the direct way for the ending of suffering, sorrow, lamentation, and despair as cultivating, developing the foundations of mindfulness, right? So I just want to, in a way, elaborate a bit on that, which, of course, everything we say is an elaboration of that. But saying that it's the direct way to the freeing our hearts and minds from suffering, just want to start with that to really just make the punctuation that the heart of the Buddhist teachings and why we all practice and share and live our life as best we can from within the heart of the Buddhist teaching is that the point is really this possibility, this potential to really free our hearts and minds from confusion, from delusion, from greed, hatred, confusion, and when we act from those things, we bring it about in the world as well. That that's really the heart of the Buddha's teachings. And he says, in different places, don't settle for anything less. Don't settle just for wholesome states of mind, of heart. And that's a vast statement. Because really, when we're suffering and a happy, wholesome state comes, that's wonderful. That's onward leading. But really, how much of the time is like, well, okay, that's really good. Good enough. I'm ready to go home. You know, and it gets more and more subtle. But I say, these are wonderful and don't settle. Merely, he says, for wholesome states of heart and mind. So I just want to put that out again, that even, especially at the, at the beginning of a retreat, at the beginning of our path, not waiting until 15, 20 years into our practice to say, oh yeah, maybe this could happen, to really say, he's laying it down, this is why we can take up a path. This is what's possible. And to echo what James said last night when he was talking about faith, about confidence, that just... Just opening, I find for myself anyway, just opening my mind, my heart to read those words, to hear them, to talk to people, to admit it as a real possibility, real potential for this mind, this heart, in this world, in this life. Never even, not so much looking to future goal but really saying how we practice now, how we explore, how I explore what's occurring in this moment, in this heart and mind. This is, in this moment, it's possible to get a sense of what this liberation could taste like. It's not something we wait for 20 years. So having that as we begin a retreat and as we continue on our path, to kind of shore us up, to, to support us. As James said, it, with the faith that gives us, um, it gives me anyway, the confidence, the willingness to do. That's one way that Santa Upandita translated sadha. It gives us the willingness to do. As James was saying, the strength, the courage to just show up, be present with, bring this quality of non-judging, relaxed, accepting mindfulness to whatever it is that's arising in this moment, in this body, in this mind, in this heart. So that's, you know, like a huge challenge, an incredibly beautiful possibility. And it's it's like in a way it holds everything. It's like the container in a way for everything that we go through in our practice, here in our practice, in our life. So from that, I just want to then talk about how some ways that, how can the simplicity of mindfulness be so powerful to be really, in a way, one of the central tools, central supports for this one lifetime, at least, journey of purifying 
the habits of our heart and mind, of really opening to the potential of freedom. How is it that mindfulness is so central? What does it do? What is it? So I want to, in my own way, talk about that a little bit. But rather than start from the doing, you know, so frequently I find in having grown up in a middle American, middle class culture, which, you know, just a sense of doing and achieving and we're um, kind of assessed by what we've done. Isn't that such a common um, way of greeting when we first meet somebody? How are you? What do you do? You know, that's not every culture. That isn't the first thing you say. So here, I want to talk about mindfulness, but not, not to begin by talking about the technique. And even though meditation is a skill and an art, and we're going to be giving all instructions that we very carefully discuss and think about what we're saying, you may not be able to recognize that, but we do. <laughs> um, but it's... N- Anyway, I'm not here sharing this to help you master or mistress a technique. The technique is secondary. It's rooted in wisdom, in right view, in wise understanding. And so, so often we start by let me do it, let me get it right, and then I'll get to understanding. But the the, the Buddha, when he gave the Eightfold Noble Path, the path of the fourth of the Four Noble Truths, the, the path of life, of practice, it begins, it's really more like a circle than a path, right? But it begins with right view, right understanding. Everything else springs out of that. So, of course, we don't begin a, a practice, I mean, with completely understanding everything, then we wouldn't need to practice. But... There's a definition of meditation that I'm liking a lot these days. I think it's from Sayada Utejaniya. I've been using it for so long I kind of forget where I got it, but it sounds like him. Vipassana meditation is experiencing the mind and body directly from moment to moment with the right understanding. That's like I love that description of Vipassana meditation. Experiencing the mind and body directly, that's essentially mindfulness, what I'll be talking about. What does that mean, directly? From moment to moment, that's the continuity that James was talking about where you don't just keep taking the kettle off off the flame. From moment to moment, with the right understanding with some sense of wisdom of why we're doing what we're doing, in a way. There's many ways to talk about that, but that's what I want to speak about the rest of, the rest of uh, this talk. So, what does that mean with the right understanding? The Dalai Lama said, I mean, you can read this from many different sources, so much of our unhappiness originates within our own minds and hearts and how we react to events in our life, so-called internal, so-called external, how we react to events in our life. And that's what the Buddha was talking about when he talked about or spoke about um, freeing our hearts and minds from suffering wasn't talking about rearranging the world so that nothing bothers us anymore. I mean, we've all been trying to, maybe not, maybe you're not, but many people I know, including me, spend an inordinate amount of time trying to rearrange the world and other people so that we're not bothered. And then more amount of time, if you're like... uh, kind of like a thinking person like me, rationalizing that so we don't really acknowledge to ourselves what we're doing. You know, rationalizing what's really wrong with that person's behavior or this thing and how we can fix it and it'll all be okay. And he's saying just what the Dalai Lama said, seeing that what frees our heart and mind isn't, we're not going to be able to fix everything. And we kind of know that on some level, right? But 
Not really. Don't we somehow think everything's got to get better? I wish everything would get better. But the Buddha wasn't saying wait till everything gets better. What's freeing? What really frees us from the reacting to experience in ways that increases our unhappiness and suffering is literally right view. In other words, recognizing what's occurring in this moment in our mind and body accurately. This to me is incredibly radical. He's saying that the freedom isn't about everything gets reorganized. Even in some ways, we don't get reorganized. It's certainly not as an act of will. But when there's this moment of experiencing the mind and body directly, fully, with complete attention, with the right understanding, in other words, recognizing accurately, without dragging in all our views and concepts and filters, which we mostly don't know we're doing, without that, we see how things are, boom. The suffering reactions don't arise because they don't make any sense. It's like, it's so, to me, it's so inspiring. And then, of course, really frustrating. Because why the heck can't we just do that? He said, come and see for yourself. So that's the miracle of mindfulness, as Thich Nhat Hanh often phrases it. Because in a moment, just one moment, and all that we can ever experience is just this one moment. In a moment of really clear recognition of what's occurring, that's the moment we get a little taste of the freedom of heart-mind, that's not lost in fear or greed or reactivity and respond in an appropriate way. This is the miracle of mindfulness. This is what we're practicing here. In some ways, when I do a retreat for myself, I just had a a month self-retreat in November. It was so lovely. And I thought, you know, should I do this practice? Should I do that practice? Should I do this technique or that technique? And in the end, it doesn't matter. It matters. I mean, you've got to do what we tell you. That's right. But <laughs> I was thinking, it doesn't matter. It's a month just to practice awareness, moment to moment. It's not to make a particular experience happen. It's to practice being with this moment's experience just as it is, how many moments do you have? Don't count it up. <laughs> how many moments do you have to practice that for this month or two weeks or two months? That's amazing. It's an amazing gift to yourself in the world. And we'll forget 10 million times because that's the habit. So that's what I'll talk about now, our habits. But then mindfulness will reassert itself. It'll do itself. It'll Suddenly there'll be awareness again also 10 million times. It's amazing. We come to trust that more and more. So the effect of accurate recognition, just give this simple example I've been using lately because I have a new nephew. I never had a niece or nephew until the last four years. And uh, it's fun for me watching, you know, how kids learn and grow. So, you know, This example to me is just the perfect example of how right view frees us from internal suffering. So you know those games, like uh, just a really young child, like two years old, with with like wooden blocks of different shapes, triangle, circle, square, whatever, and they have a big uh, board with the holes of the same shape and they learn to put the right shape in the right hole. They still do stuff like that with their hands, even though two-year-olds can work my cell phone better than I can. But, I mean, he picked it up. I have, you know, four, four screens of apps. He flips through the apps, goes to one that does like some kind of spin art. I didn't even know it was there. He goes to it. He opens it. He starts drawing colors. The kid was two and a half years old. It's shocking. <laughs> That's another story. Anyway... Back to the simplicity of square, triangle, circles, putting it in. And so to us, that's just obvious. But to a kid who doesn't know and doesn't see shapes, they see the adult do it. 
they try to do it and it doesn't work because they don't have the concept of the right shape in the right matching hole. And so watching, trying to put it in, it doesn't work. The adult does it, it does work. The frustration, the anger, you know, want to throw the blocks, get mad at the parent, throw the whole thing away. And, you know, if, if you could, if we were, it was an adult person with that kind of experience, the thought trains could be stuff like, I'm so stupid, or they're holding a secret from me, they're not telling me how it really works, I hate them, I'm no, all of that stuff, right? And then at some point, the penny drops. You know, he gets the triangle in the triangle, the circle in the circle. Maybe first it's an accident, but then two, three times it's like you get it. And as soon as he gets it, all that other stuff just vanishes. There's no more anger. There's no more sense you're hiding a secret from me. There's no more frustration. It's gone because it just doesn't apply when there's accurate recognition of the experience. It's so simple. Really. That's a simple example, but that, that sense of that, ah, aha, that's how it works. There's no more struggle. The mind heart is at peace in that moment. This is how it is now. That's really right view. This is how it is now. I kind of think of that as a, like an insight moment, whether it's a personal insight or a dominant insight. It's like, oh, it's like that now. You know, it's not something we can plan or create with an act of will because we don't even know what we don't know. But this is what the mindfulness, the careful attention, just seeing what's going on, suddenly is, oh, it's like this. That's right view. And the struggle stops. So... Something James said, go on, go on. But anyway, when we see things as they really are, what's the effect of that? It's like we don't fight with gravity, right? Gravity's like this, the laws of nature. Somebody said the Dhamma means laws of nature. So for instance, gravity, when we, we really aren't going to waste our time getting upset because if we jump off the roof of a building, we're going to fall. We know that. We just, you know, it's like, that's just how it is. It, you know, what is she talking about? It doesn't even make sense. So, right view, which is a result of steady, steady, simple mindfulness, is that same effect. We stop fighting with things as they are. Recently, um, last fall, I had a visit. I had lunch with uh, a woman I've known for many, many years, uh, a dear friend, very wise, deep pr- practitioner, um, and a, a mentor and benefactor. And she's now in her early 90s. And she uh, has had a, a really, really rich and full life over her life. Really very many wonderful things she's done, a very full life. And in her, now she lives in a, a retirement community, got a retirement facility you know, so externally it looks like her body's quite frail and she can walk, but gingerly, you know, and you don't go out and do things so much. It's, she's in her early 90s. So externally it would look that her life is quite constricted, quite, gotten quite narrow, you know. But she began her, um, her introduction to Buddha Dhamma meditation practice, I'm, I'm guessing in her mid-50s. I don't really know. She wasn't at all in Donna before that. And just devoted herself to it. I mean, even in the midst of her full life, devoted herself to it. Uh, really many, many years of long, long uh, intensive retreats and practice and life. And really one of the more profound um, meditators we know, right? So she said, and it was so inspiring. We were just hanging out, very simple, had a little lunch, you know, nothing just talked about. She liked my socks. I mean, just very simple and normal. And then she said, you know, this is the most interesting time of my life. This is just so interesting. I said, really? How do you, how so? I said, well, for instance, when I'm here and I walk across the floor to the little kitchen, I'm just... So mindful presence, just walking across the floor, that's everything. 
That's what there is. And then when I'm making the water for the tea, just, she didn't say I'm totally there. She wouldn't even make a claim like that. Just saying it's just what there is. It's just everything. It's so interesting. Noticing what's going on in the body, in the mind, whatever I'm doing, the most interesting time of my life. This, to me, isn't just some simple thing somebody's saying. It's like, I'm, okay, I'm projecting, but I do know her a long time. It's really the effect of a heart and mind that's quite awake in the moment, and in that wakefulness, that ability to be just fully present with walking across the floor. It means the, the mind, the heart at that moment, isn't distracted by thinking, ah, I, I used to be able to walk better. It's not distracted by looking for something more interesting, you know, to land in. It's like, oh, okay, but this is so little, I used to have this big house. It's not wishing that I didn't, you know, whatever. Not looking anywhere else for fulfillment, not caught in wanting, not caught in judgment. All that energy is just present without looking for anything, just it's like this now, with, with total presence and wakefulness. This is really the purity of citta, citta, heart, mind, energy. This is the purity of presence that comes when we're not so caught up in recognizing inaccurately and looking for happiness and ease and peace in a way that can't offer it, that can't bring it. And instead seeing the happiness, the freedom, isn't about any activity or any object. It's just as available walking across the floor as being in some really deep state of meditation, which this person had experienced many, many times. It's just as available in pouring the tea because it's got nothing to do with the activity or the object, or being fulfilled by some experience. It's that, that collected purity, that presence of heart-mind that is recognizing accurately it's like this. And not problem or story around it. Given my choice, if it was an act of will, I'd live like that. Maybe you would too. Maybe you're thinking, I don't want to walk across the floor and be happy. I'm looking for something a little more oomphy than that. But here you are. You're going to walk back and forth, back and forth, back and forth. (laughs) Why not try it? See if it's possible. Instead of wishing you were walking, you know, into Bhutan or something, just walk back and forth and explore the quality of heart and mind that's just being fully present with this without bringing in all our filters. That's, that's why the Buddha talks about right view, the filters over our perception that get in the way of accurate recognition. It's just our human condition. Mindfulness can help us recognize this, but without mindfulness, we don't know. So, I mean, simple examples of what I'm saying. Perception is just this recognizing what's happening, or feeling a sensation in my foot, or seeing and it's light, or hearing a sound, and knowing, you know, if I, if I ring the bell, you just hear that sound. But without mindfulness, or even with mindfulness, if we don't recognize it, when we hear that bell, the perception they did bell, whatever our past experience might have been, around bells is somehow there, you know? It may be mild, that's a pretty mild thing, but maybe when you were in school, the bells drove you crazy and you hear a bell now and you still tense up. Maybe you were in, you see this, you go, that's the most beautiful sound I ever heard. And then you're off thinking about all kinds of things. Where did they get that bell? Or you think, oh, that person who rang the bell, rang it too loud, rang it too soft, they were blah, 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 blah. All this garbage, you know. And this is like just a little nothing thing. But that's, that's normal. We're all the product of our whole life, the conditions of our life, our family, our culture, our schooling, what we've um, grown up to believe, the way we've been viewing the world. That's in, inescapable. It's part of being human. 
And where we get caught is when we don't recognize that it's a filter of you. And we, we just, we don't even know that there's a filter on how we're perceiving and recognizing and responding. We just think, well, that's, we don't even think that's how it is. We know that's how it is. And now we have all, so the pain of different people and different cultures from different backgrounds, not understanding one another, feeling threatened, feeling angry, feeling, you know, and just not really having, how can we have that sense of say, you, you relate to the world in a very different way than I relate to the world. Of course, I like the way I relate to the world. It's comfortable. It feels true. Can I know, though, that that's a cultural conditioning? Yours is different. Neither one's right. Mindfulness is just, it's like a stepping outside of the views of all of our cultures. It's really radical in that way. It's a stepping outside of the comfortable, often unrecognized, familiar view of self and the world. And even though there's a lot of teachings from the Buddha, it's not positing another view. The Buddha gave a lot of teachings. He's a lot of descriptions of how the mind and heart works and how the world works. But at the end, he's saying, as Greg and James have said, ehi pasako, look and see for yourself what's true. What brings freedom and ease of heart and mind? What strengthens compassion, love and connectedness? What strengthens greed, hatred and confusion? Look and see. And believing what he said, he said, believing what I say, isn't going to free you. It may just give you a way to look. So he's not positing another view. I love that. But just staying or being in the, okay, this is what I think, and I don't know. What's the bare experience right now? That's so freeing, but it's also often not so comfortable. Mindfulness is just practicing this moment to moment. So a simple example is a story I often tell because I, I love how this sense of our different world views. So I've spent uh, many years in the winter. I go to Burma with friends and we go to different nunneries. There's many, many uh, women who are nuns and young girls who are nuns, very poor, many of them, rather simple in terms of, simple in terms of, um, different kind of education from what I had here in the West, say. And in that, it's um, the, the worldview is very, of the, the nuns that I know, is very uh, classical Buddhist worldview. Different realms and devas and hell realms and all of that. So that's just the worldview. So we were there once and we were doing... Um, there had been a huge cyclone, like a hurricane, that had destroyed the crops in many, many areas of the, of the country. So we were just going to a couple of small villages and offering donations that many people had of rice and food and like that, just a one-time donation. So we were doing that, and it was in a big room with many people offering and receiving and a whole, you know, very good energy. And pictures, always taking tons of pictures. So we looked at the photos when we got back to the the monastery we were staying. And in some of them, there were, through all the photos, were these round, perfectly round um, circles of light. Just this bright light, circles of light all through the photos. So we're looking at it. And a couple of friends, Burmese women, but also other, another friend who'd been living as a nun there for many, many years. They also, oh yeah, well, those are devas. Devas being celestial beings. That's how devas look in photos. Oh, really? And then another friend who has equally been there also many years, but she's a scientist. She's a, uh, from a medical background and a PhD scientist. So she looks at it and goes, well, that's some refraction of the light, some water in the lens, and then you go all this stuff. And we're like, oh, yeah, it could be. Huh? Who knows? But she's positive. So we're like, which is which? And I can see how my mind... I didn't have a big investment, but my mind goes, yeah, right, refraction of the lens, water in the lens, of course, I don't go right to its Davis. So we, I mean, we weren't getting in fights, but that, there was that. So we left it. Then later I looked on my computer and I had some photos from a different camera, same thing, 
and circles of light all over. You know, different, but, oh, that's interesting. Maybe there was Davis. The thing is, who knows? Who knows? But each, each coming from the particular background, really sure that's what it is. So we played, we'd show the pictures to people back, you know, back at home and Barry and there's some scientific kind. Oh yes, that's, that's blah, blah, light, refraction, whatever. Other people really kind of more faith-based. Oh no, that's Davis, that makes sense to me. Some years later, two, three years later, the scientist woman, friend, was in, uh, she went to uh, Ramana Maharshi's ashram in Tiruvannamalai in southern India. And there's a sacred mountain, Mount Arunachala there. I, I find it a very powerful place. And on every full moon, it's done that people come from all over India to circumambulate the mountain. It's a whole huge, you know, several, quite some miles to do the whole thing. And when we talk about people coming from all over India, we're talking hundreds of thousands of people. Like maybe on this, particular, on this particular full moon night, it was some special one. She said they were estimating a million people. We're talking a lot of people coming from all over with great faith circumambulating this mountain at night. They do it at night. So she sent me a photo, which I haven't been able to find again. There was just perfect balls of light all over that photo. She said, I give up, <laughs> I give up. <laughs> Maybe it's Davis, who knows? Who knows? So when Greg does his chant, his David chant, I love it, you know? And, and we don't have to posit what's true or what isn't. But seeing the sense of knowing the filters, that's fine. We're human, we're all gonna have those filters. It's not a problem when we recognize it. So then to say being mindful, if I was looking at the photo, it would really be not needing to make an assessment or a story at all. I'd be aware of seeing. I'd be aware of the mind thinking. I'd be aware of liking or disliking or whatever. That's what's occurring in this moment. Then if I had a memory of Davis or whatever, I'd be aware of that thought and that memory very different from looking and saying, it's this or it's that, and you're right and I'm wrong. This is really the quality of mindfulness. So that's kind of how it works. The power of mindfulness is just this willingness to, to completely land for just a moment. It's like this now. You don't have to even know, even be able to reckon, but you're just walking and there's a feeling, it's like this now. You're sitting and there's a noise that's bugging you, it's like this now. Now that doesn't mean you suddenly like it. It's like this now means I feel really annoyed. It's like this now. Annoyance feels like this. It's just relaxing into, with fullness of presence, just what's occurring in this moment again and again and again. We like it, we don't like it. Well, not needing to make the story. The sense of just opening with wonder. The sense of discovery. Each moment is new and fresh. It doesn't mean we love each moment. But it means we're not in struggle. We're not fighting. And then there's the possibility to recognize accurately. Because what gets in the way of recognizing accurately is the habits of mind of aversion. You know, right away we don't like, we push away. There's no way to even be fully present. We're already, you know, holding it at the situation at a distance. Or wanting, which is again, oh, looking out there, looking out there, or trying to keep it like this instead of, oh, it's just like this. Let it go. Let it go. Even, I don't even like to use let it. It's not in our control. It's coming, it's here, it goes. That's what's happening. Whether you let it or not, it's gonna do that. So it's just this sense of just relaxing fully into what's occurring now. This is our practice. And it's not easy. What really fuels the habits of 
pushing away aversion, not liking, of wanting it to be a certain way, of just getting completely confused and lost in thoughts and stories. Really the bottom line is this creation in the moment to moment of relating to any particular experience as being me or mine. I just read this, just the other day I was reading something from Dingo Kensi Rinpoche and I thought he gave a very pithy explanation of this. So I'm going to read it. The very root of delusion is the thought of I, the habit of clinging to the notion of self. This notion is simply due to a failure to investigate. There's no such thing as a truly existing autonomous self. Our minds fabricate this concept in the same way that it makes up all of our thoughts. Then, after constructing this self over and over again, we get so used to our invention that it seems to really exist as a distinct entity. And then, when the thought has deeply taken root, we demand that the self should be happy and comfortable, enjoying wealth and pleasures. If it could be the center of the universe, that would be the best. This attitude is the very basis for our wandering around and around in samsara. This attitude is the very basis for not recognizing what's happening accurately, relating to it in terms of it's going to make me happy or unhappy, and then taking that response out into the world and suffering. But I bring this up and I'll talk a little about not that we should hate or fear or judge or think we're here to somehow dig up and uproot the self. As he says, and Ramana Maharshi says the same thing, that the self exists just because it's not investigated. So you don't even have to go investigating self. The steady moment-to-moment mindfulness, what's happening now? What's happening now? It reveals things the way they are. It's not like have an active will now, you're going to go out and stop creating sense of self. I'll tell you right now, you're not. But it's simply another thought, another experience that can be met with mindfulness, as with anything. So it's nothing to fear or to hate or think, I'm so bad, I have such a strong sense of self. You hear people say that. I hear people say that. And then you listen to it, it's like, you know, it's just like, you know, a loop, an unfinished loop. It's like, oh, sense of self is like this right now. Simply another arising experience. So I'm trying to take the, take the mystery out of it. Don't make it a big bugaboo. But starting to see when we don't recognize, that's the strongest filter that blocks accurate recognition, right view. It's the, like the kind of like at the core habit of life. It's just a habit of mind. It's just a habit of thought that unrecognized or reacted, recognized but taken personally and reacted to, leads us into all realms of confusion and suffering. So, back to that definition of vipassana, experiencing the mind and body directly, moment to moment, with the right understanding. Meaning, not that you can come in or any of us can come in, I'm giving up a sense of self. I will no longer have that thought arise, and when it does arise, I won't believe it. We can't do that. But, the right understanding is just starting to recognize we don't have to take experience so personally. Even the sense of self is just a habit. So whatever's arising, when we're taking it personally, I mean, you know how that feels, right, to take it personally. But what's going on? One of the ways the Buddha describes experience, and explore this as we go through the days, 
What are we experiencing? Seeing, hearing, smelling, tasting, touching, physical sensation, and the whole mental world, thoughts, emotions, perceptions, the whole mental world. Those are like six things that just keep happening over and over and over. The mental world is, of course, much more complex, and it constructs whole stories about whatever it is that's occurring. But notice, if you're, say you're walking, there's many sights and sounds and touches on the body and thoughts that come. That they're just coming and going. No big whoop, right? And suddenly, there's a sight or a sound or a thought that the next moment of mental energy grabs that thought. It really identifies, it's me or it's mine. That particular thought has become personal. Simple, like today I was walking outside and I felt chilly. So the moment to moment experience was a sensation of walking, coolness, chilliness, kind of a contraction in my body, felt like that's the experience. Then there there could be just that. It could be unpleasant, there could be a thought it's chilly, noticing all of that, no big deal. Then there's, it's chilly. It shouldn't be like this. I should have worn another sweater. What if I get sick? Blah, 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 blah. But the whole thing has become contracted and all about me. And then it takes off into the infinite universe. Have you noticed that? It doesn't usually stop with one thought. I'm cold and it's not good for me. Okay, la, la, la. Usually goes. That's taking it personally. How can I, it doesn't mean you can't go put on a sweater. I'm not saying that. But so much of the time, it moves immediately into aversion, into wanting, into stories of me, into taking it personally. And often when difficult stuff's happening, we get really lost in self-blame, in self-judgment, taking it personally. And so when we're saying, recognizing what's occurring with the right understanding, When you're experiencing something that's, say, difficult, say aversion's coming up or fear's coming up, taking it personally would be somehow thinking, it's my fault or it's me, I have to fix it, especially when we're seeing unpleasant stuff. As James said, the whole world of difficult stuff will come, the whole world of beautiful stuff will come. When we take it personally, awareness in that moment kind of ends there, it stops, and it's all about how can I hold on to this, how can I get rid of this, how can I fix everything, so it keeps being, and we don't recognize accurately. Recognizing with right understanding is that whatever's arising, there's conditions, everything arises due to the conditions that were coming before. We can't see all the conditions. I mean, just sitting here, there's the conditions that go back to the Big Bang that led us all to be here. You can't ever really stop somewhere. But we can't say that's all, it's all about me. And so when we start to see, okay, say aversion's arising, instead of thinking, another sign of what an aversive person I am. It's hopeless. I better do metta from now till the end of time. <laughs> instead of that, there's the possibility, ah, aversion's like this now. Awareness just notices it without making it personal. Notice it arising and then just being there without all the extra, oh, that experience of the coldness, noticing the the, uh, shivering, noticing that's unpleasant, noticing the mind doesn't like it. And when there's not awareness of that, that not liking it leads into aversion, leads into a whole story of aversion. Oh, that's how it works. So, Mindfulness lets us see how all this works. And when we see how it works, when we can drop the triangle block into the triangle hole, we don't have to throw the blocks. We don't have to hate the parents. We don't have to get all whacked out because there's aversion or wanting going on. We can see what's happening. Take our refuge in the awareness, in the mindfulness, not in having the perfect experience to make it okay. So just starting to bring this up, not that we have to get it all, but, you know, Semedo, Ajahn Semedo, I find him a wonderful, inspiring teacher. Uh, No, he's American, isn't he? An American man who's been a a monk in the 
Ajahn Chah Thai tradition for many, many, many years. And I heard him say once, you know, thought they shouldn't talk about in teaching or in practice that the the concept of you know, no, no permanent self, the concept of Sakaya Ditti, personality view, grabbing hold of any experience and making a me or a mine out of it. That's what I was just describing, personality view. That that shouldn't be talked about until you've been practicing for a long time because it's too subtle. But he said, but he thought, you realize that's crazy. Why spend 20 years practicing from wrong understanding? All the time thinking it's me doing this to get that particular state and be happy when there's no particular thing to get that's ever going to last. And to think the happiness isn't about my personality being happy or getting a thing, but about, as I described with my friend, just the purity, the simplicity of total presence, recognizing things as they are and not adding extra. Then we start to recognize what maybe wasn't able to be recognized when we're um, caught behind that idea of self and looking through that at the world and all of our experience. Archbishop Desmond Tutu, you know who he is, the South African Archbishop who was um, Nobel Peace Prize laureate. And he was one of the um, chair people after apartheid ended in South Africa, one of the chair people of the the Committee for um, Truth and Reconciliation, very powerful person. Anyway, he's describing uh, an African concept, he said, a concept that we have at home, the concept of Ubuntu. It says a person is a person through other persons. Ubuntu says, when I have a small piece of bread, it is for my benefit that I share it with you because after all, none of us came into the world on our own. You realize that in a very real sense, we are part of a profound complementarity. It is the nature of things. You don't have to be a believer in anything. I mean, I could not speak as I am speaking without having learned it from other human beings. I learned to be a human being from other human beings. We belong in this delicate network. It is actually quite profound. Unfortunately, in our world, we tend not to recognize this until times of great disaster. So I'm just offering that as a possibility of perceiving in a whole different way that isn't me at the center and everyone else out there, but that's not something we do with an act of will. It's really where the trust in this steady, simple, moment-to-moment mindful awareness of just whatever's arising, where this becomes so powerful. Because when we start looking for what we think we should see, we're already in some kind of wanting and some kind of moving away. But to say, for example, experience Ubuntu complementarity as he describes. I can't think my way into that. It may have been something my thinking mind would never have come up with. But when the, the filters of me and other and wanting is, isn't arising in a moment, then things as they are is accessible, is perceivable. The filters may come back again in the next moment. And a good clue that that's happening is we're going to start feeling stress again. We're going to start feeling some tension, some wanting, some discontent. Don't take that personal. Say, all oh, right, so what's going on? Discontent feels like this. Whatever's occurring in this moment, that's the only moment there is. That's the doorway to present moment awareness and the steadiness of present moment awareness is the condition that allows clear-seeing wisdom to arise. So to me, that's a huge relief. It's not that I or you have to generate wisdom. In fact, you can't. But it's the law of nature. 
that when there's steady, steady, non-judging awareness, suddenly the clarity, oh yeah, that's the triangle, it fits in the triangle. It just arises naturally. We can trust that. This is where the tool of the steady mindfulness, uh, awareness, is so powerful because it's something we can recognize and practice again and again and again. If we can trust enough to let that land in whatever it is that's happening rather than continuing to get sucked into trying to organize what's happening to match some idea we don't even know we have. Conditioning. But there's just a moment of recognition. Ah, we're not dragging in the past and the future. And it's just this, just the sensation of warmth on my foot. It's enough. So I just want to end with what it's like. When the Dalai Lama greets you, He takes your hand and then rubs it tenderly as a grandparent might. He looks into your eyes, feels deeply what you are feeling, and touches his forehead to yours. Whatever feeling, elation or anguish, is in your heart and reflected on your face, it is mirrored in his. But then, when he meets the next person, those emotions are gone and he is wholly available for the next encounter and the next moment. Perhaps that is what it means to be fully present, available for each moment and each person we encounter, untethered by the memories of the past and not lured by the anticipatory worry about the future. So this is our practice. This is our practice, moment to moment, simple mindfulness, and then the laws of So thank you for your attention. Let's just sit quietly for a moment. Oh, about 35 minutes for walking and then the sitting and chanting together. Thank you. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.